my name is Aaron Bauer. I'm one of the PGY3 neurology residents here at uh, Yale New Haven Hospital. I'm here with Dr. Muller today, and we're going to be uh, talking about uh, toxidromes, essentially. Um, that's kind of a tie-in to the vitamin lecture that we had given uh, before. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. I think I think this is uh, really going to be a nice supplement to the last podcast. Uh, they do go together. We're, we're hoping we can provide some one-stop shopping uh, for things that commonly come up in both clinical practice and on certification exams. As we say all the time, we're not experts necessarily on toxicity, but we do think it could be helpful to have a review on an audio format. It is something that some of our listeners have recommended. And, and I do want to acknowledge that Aaron did the lion's share of the work in terms of putting together an outline, although we'll, we'll try to work together to uh, put these together. So this podcast will probably be a little bit more bullet pointed, um, but we'll hope to kind of keep this uh, flowing well. And, and just to overview, Aaron, it looks like we're going to talk about the heavy metals. Uh, mm -hmm. We're not going to do any heavy metal. That would be a different kind of podcast that nobody would want to hear about. Then we'll talk about some organic compounds, including some of the alcohols, carbon monoxide, and then some specific sort of toxidromes and emergencies related to iatrogenic sources. So some of the things we prescribe and some of the things that I think are particularly important to review. So we'll certainly not be totally comprehensive, but it'll be those categories, right? Uh, heavy metals, some organic compounds, and then the things that we can do to patients uh, if we give them too much of something. Well, let's uh, let's get ready to rock. Uh, for those who are about to rock, uh, we are ready with the heavy metals. So the heavy metals we're going to talk about uh, are arsenic, lead, manganese, and mercury, right? Those are the big ones. So, so Aaron, tell me what you've learned about arsenic toxicity. So arsenic's an interesting one. Uh, generally speaking, we think about exposures for arsenic um, with pressure treated wood, smelting, refining, some people with, you know, contaminated soil and water. And that's kind of a, a recurring theme. A lot of it can be, you know, contaminated soil, water, and a lot of occupational hazards for most of these heavy metals um, as we go through each of them. Uh, and similarly, there will be some overarching clinical presentations with a lot of them acutely with a lot of, you know, encephalopathy. And these will always be part of your differential when we're going through acute encephalopathies. So a lot of those symptoms and clinical concerns will kind of overlap with some of these, uh, but we'll talk about some key features. So for arsenic, uh, like I was saying, neurologically, very acutely, going to be mostly an encephalopathy type picture, a lot of confusion, headache, memory impairment, and some will even have, you know, very acutely and you know, like severely present with seizures. Uh, a little bit more delayed neurologically, we actually see a bit of an ascending sensory loss and weakness. And some actually say that it can, similar to like a G GBS or AIDP type picture. Uh, and then more systemically speaking, acutely, we'll have a lot of GI distress, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. Uh, some people, I guess one of the key like kind of buzzwords that come up on tests or is supposed to be a clinical clue is this, this garlic odor that's described to the breath um, along with some oral lesions. Then not naturally they'll have a lot of cardiac abnormalities, renal abnormalities. And specifically for dermatology, um, if you look at nail beds in patients with arsenic toxicity, they actually have these horizontal lines called mes lines that are just kind of like these white abnormal areas of keratinization that kind of grow outward. 
And this is all kind of more part of the acute toxicity of arsenic. More chronically speaking, um, they will present more with polyneuropathy, more slowly progressive. So it's in your differential for uh, patients with, you know, a symmetric sensory motor neuropathy. Um, and similarly, some nonspecific cognitive impairments, uh, more along memory, agitation, disorientation. Uh, and then diagnostically speaking, when we go through arsenic, you know, if we're dealing with somebody with a symmetric sensory motor polyneuropathy that we're working up, generally we can always uh, figure out a little bit more detail with EMG nerve conduction studies. And in this case, you'll actually see a, an axonal neuropathy um, versus a demyelinating neuropathy when you go through those studies. And in terms of management, this will be similar for a lot of them. But ultimately, when it comes to toxicity of heavy metals and most toxidromes, uh, you're going to be thinking about chelation as the ultimate treatment in order to help eliminate the metal. Um, and in this case, we generally use something like a dimercaprol or a DMSA to try and help excrete and collect and, you know, get rid of as much of the arsenic as possible. A couple of things that were, I guess, notable, right? I, dividing it into sort of the acute and chronic toxicity, and probably this is a dose-dependent sort of thing. And acutely, you can have a neuropathy as well, is sort of the rapidly ascending paraparesis or weakness and numbness. You know, one of the things I think that's interesting about these, and I guess a question our listeners would have is, you know, why, when do we check for arsenic or other heavy metal problems in, in somebody with relatively nonspecific symptoms, right? I mean, a, a sensory motor or axonal neuropathy, right? I mean, that, that could be anything. And I guess the answer is uh, to, to take a history. Uh, if there's an occupational exposure, if somebody's in sort of industry that employs the use of arsenic, like the refining, like, uh, you know, working in a pressure treatment facility or something like that, theoretically contamination, right? Uh, soil and water and those would be population health-based things, I would assume. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, these these things are tend to be monitored carefully. Although with well water, you never know, and we often ask about well water. And uh, and and the Mies lines are important. One of the, the other things I had uh, noticed about the Mies lines, because this comes up on tests, uh, there are those those horizontal lines, often light colored, um, mm -hmm. but they don't have ridges, so they're different than the ridged lines that you can see with other disorders. So they're sort of flat. So if you see a photograph of that. One of the things you can think about is arsenic toxicity. And so I guess the takeaway points to summarize for arsenic would be there's an acute and chronic. The acute looks a lot like other acute heavy metal toxic, uh, toxicity. The chronic is most often a symmetric sensory motor axonal polyneuropathy. Most of the time, you just want to identify an exposure and get rid of it. Let's let's get the lead out next. I'm, I'm just going to keep coming hard and fast with these heavy metal related puns. I think that one landed with a leaden thump. Um, but what, what, uh, Aaron, why don't you lead us uh, in a conversation about lead? Uh, I should have known these puns were coming when I set up this one. All right. So for lead, uh, similarly, a lot of what will come about in terms of exposure will come from history. So in terms of occupations associated with, you know, a higher incident of lead exposure, we can think about plumbers because of lead in pipes, uh, painters, auto repair, uh, generally something along shipbuilders, steel welders. And then in terms of stuff, you know, in terms of hobbies, you can think about people who do a lot of like pottery glazing uh, and target shooting, just, you know, people who are interacting with a lot of lead bullets, you know, chronically over their lifetime is something that has come up at times. 
Another thing to throw in, of course, would be uh, exposure through the lead pipes at at homes. Uh, We've heard about contaminated uh, lead contamination in in, uh, municipal water supplies. Uh, So something Mm -hmm. to pay attention to in the news and in certain areas, you may see this. And this uh, can be a problem in many communities in the United States. And in terms of clinical presentations, similarly, we can kind of look at, you know, acute, subacute toxicities versus some of the more chronic findings that you'll have. And you'll see it is very similar um, across all the heavy metals. So some nonspecific headache, neurocognitive difficulties in the acute setting. If they're really high exposures, it can develop all the way to a coma or seizures. Um, And then you'll have more systemic effects acutely, you know, similar GI pain, constipation, some arthralgias and myalgias, and anemia particularly is is a little bit of a clue systemically when you're looking. These patients generally will have a bit of a hypochromic microcytic anemia. And chronically, uh, you can start to see some weakness. Usually weakness that develops in the setting of chronic lead is distal weakness, kind of more along the extensors of the wrist and of the fingers. And similarly, you'll see a bit of a distal symmetric uh, sensory motor polyneuropathy. And in terms of diagnostics, similarly, it's going to be lead levels. Uh, we generally do blood lead levels in order to kind of get a sense of how much is there, how much is accumulated. And generally, those levels are how treatment is guided as well. Um, in children, particularly children, where we're worried about kind of oral intake of lead. Um, sometimes acutely, they can do a just a abdominal x-ray and you'll just actually be able to see those densities on the x-ray. Generally speaking, if there is acute and they can get at it with GI contamination or even endoscopic removal, that is something that is done at times. Um, And similarly, for the management, always removal of exposure first, and then getting rid of what you can and considering chelation based on higher lead levels. Um, And those kind of vary depending on age, be it children or adults. And similarly speaking, it will be agents like DMSA. Yeah, there there are some there is some guidance as we said that as you said that you can look up in terms of when chelation would be recommended, and we're often seeking expert input on on when to do this. And you know, it's going to be a common theme throughout our conversations that removing exposures as much as we can uh, is going to be a huge component of how we manage these problems. I think. Most important from a social perspective is that early lead exposure can have profound and long-lasting effects on cognition and growth. And so this is a particularly problematic exposure in children, although certainly exposure in adults, probably more commonly, you're going to see that polyneuropathy sometimes with a prominent motor component in those wrist and fingers extensors. And as you said, a clue that this might be happening is that microcytic uh, hypochromic anemia. We review every abnormality on, 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 in our investigations, and sometimes that microcytic anemia, we're assuming that's just related to mild iron deficiency, but it could be related to a toxicity. So some take-home points about that. And you know, on the examinations, you might see questions about the lead lines. You might see some questions about the wrist and finger extension specifically, but something to be considered if there's sort of any clue about potential occupational or home exposure. So I think at this point, we can probably move on to manganese. So with manganese, uh, generally we'll think of exposure sources in uh, some patients like with uh, chronic TPN, 
consumption of you know contaminated well water, as we've kind of talked about before. Occupations where manganese exposure may occur, we'll generally think about welding, smelting, mining, so more specific. Um, and then occasionally you can see it in cirrhotic patients, particularly patients with a really predominant shunting physiology. So they lose a lot of the protective benefits of the liver. In terms of presentation, uh, manganese has actually presents with a Parkinsonism, essentially. They can have some postural instability, the bradykinesia, shuffling gait, uh, action and postural tremors. And then outside of that, maybe a little bit of hyperreflexia, they'll have that increased tone and some dysfunctional speech. And this all kind of relates, it actually has an interesting pathophysiology in the basal ganglia related to both the DAT transporters and a DMT transporter, which kind of is more important for divalent metals. Um, both are found in really high concentration in the basal ganglia and actually spares the substantia nigra. So you have just like this accumulation because of these transporters with manganese essentially just being concentrated down into the basal ganglia leading to these Parkinsonium features, which I felt was pretty interesting. I had never understood the exact pathophysiology of this particular metal before. In terms of diagnostics, we're thinking more blood, urine, hair is kind of how we can see elevations, uh, at least initially. Uh, in terms of imaging, you know, in somebody who's coming with an acute Parkinsonism and you have these kind of questions about, you know, etiology, generally speaking, you can get an MRI and then you'd actually see hyperintensities on T1 in the globus pallidus um, as you're getting that accumulation of the metal itself. And then on a PET scan, you actually see that, you know, outside of that, the nigrostriatal system is relatively spared when you do fluoridopa PET imaging. In terms of management, we come back to kind of what we've been discussing before. So removal of exposures, consideration of chelation, um, and an interesting side point, given that the substantia nigra itself isn't particularly affected, levodopa isn't beneficial, or if anything, it may be transiently beneficial when you go to you know, trial treatment and somebody coming in, especially with a Parkinsonism, they may have some exposures, they're not levodopa responsive, and you can start questioning things a little bit. Uh, one, one additional sort of clinical pearl, I don't know if this would come up on an exam, but nice for our audience to hear about it. Um, there is a specific gait um, which has been associated with the Parkinsonism that you see with, with, with hypermanganesemia or manganism. And that is on the tiptoes, this very straight trunk, the neck extended a little bit, sometimes the arms flexed and walking on the tiptoes and, and quite ataxic. And it, I, I don't know how specific it is for manganism. It is something that has been mentioned. It comes up in a case report that's published in the literature every handful of years. And Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm going to share my video. This is not for uh, not something that, that our listeners are going to be able to see, but let me just show you, Aaron, what this looks like. Is it like the spasticity that they develop? It's the a combination of spasticity and dystonia and the, you know, the, so the Parkinsonism. Yeah. So she's sort of walking on her tiptoes and kind of strutting a little bit. Yeah, you see it's like sort of dystonic and, and spastic. Uh, yeah, so it's a very characteristic pattern uh, that foot plantar flexion with the inability of the heels to touch the floor. So the person's standing on their tiptoes and there's a little bit of a bounciness to the gait, all thought to be related to prominent dystonia of the feet. Um, and it is a, a pattern usually 
documented in children with manganism, so either acquired or genetic manganism. And you mentioned the occupational exposures, but another reason to ask about well water, we, we live in a place, Aaron, where there is a lot of well water uh, and there is the potential for exposures. And so I think the next one that we're going to touch base on is going to be mercury. Uh, exposure sources we generally think about are going to be occupational. So in terms of like making thermometers, barometers, some fluorescent light bulbs, um, similar metal refineries, there's kind of more uh, colloquially in the past, there was a concern that maybe amalgam tooth fillings in dentistry were thought to give you enough physiological uh, mercury to be significant. But I guess that's been reviewed. And at this point, the WHO doesn't think that it's necessarily a problem by any means, not physiologically significant. So that one's kind of on the back burner, but in the past has been thought to contribute. In terms of presentations for mercury toxicity, generally it's not many neurologic symptoms. Acutely, it actually presents as more of an interstitial pneumonitis. Uh, so most of the neurologic symptoms we see are generally in the setting of a chronic exposure. And we'll see uh, some movement disorders, particularly an intention tremor is what we'll see with a chronic mercury exposure. And then kind of similar with the other heavy metals, some neurocognitive dysfunction, be it personality change, anxiety, irritability, some memory loss, and just kind of a, a generalized weakness, not necessarily the you know specific weakness that we saw with lead in terms of the uh, extensors distally. In terms of diagnosis, uh, generally speaking, this one's a little bit better if we do a 24-hour urine. Um, it's usually the most reliable test for mercury. And similar treatment, if there was to do anything in case of a very high urine, um, a urine mercury level, we would consider DMSA again. Uh, one thing I would add, uh, Aaron, is that you're talking about mainly inorganic or elemental, elemental mercury exposure, that is things obtained through industrial or, or other uh, external sources. There are organic mercury forms, usually consumed in fish that contain high levels of mercury. It's pretty hard to develop mercury toxicity in that context, except if you're maybe consuming a lot of fish that have particularly high levels of this mercury. Uh, and they tend to be larger types of fish you can find a list of sort of the mercury containing fish. In those cases, the syndrome is a little bit different and you can get uh, central nervous system disorders, including cerebellar dysfunction, cognitive dysfunction. One particularly toxic form of organic mercury is methylmercury. And um, there have been several reports of neurological disease related to acute or chronic intoxication uh, with this particular form of mercury. Usually, this is in the context of a source of pollution in the water, uh, mercury-containing compounds that are put into the water from industrial waste, and then this is converted to the organic methylmercury through the aquatic food chain, eventually becoming particularly concentrated in larger predatory fish, which are then eaten by humans. And this disease tends to affect the brain. Uh, as I said before, it can include cerebellar dysfunction with ataxia, constriction of the visual fields. Uh, there are reports of it causing hearing loss. It can cause cognitive impairment and behavioral disturbances. And in Japan, apparently this is termed minimada disease. And 
there's a really great uh, review about chronic neurological disease due to methylmercury poisoning by Alan Jackson that's in the Canadian Journal of Neurological Sciences in uh, 2018. And I, I would direct our listeners towards this article, which really has a nice review of a really nice thorough review of neurological disease related to uh, methylmercury poisoning, which is a specific type of organic mercury poisoning. Thank you for that addition. And then moving forward, we were going to start talking more about uh, exposures, specifically methanol and carbon monoxide, as these are two relatively uh, frequently tested uh, kind of syndromes that we see. In terms of methanol, uh, so this is generally, we're thinking about exposure sources like cleaning solvents, antifreeze, uh, some industrial products at home, or classically, there's always like the consideration and concern for like home alcohol distillation. So like really bad moonshine. But yeah, Aaron, I actually, I grew up in a, in, in Northern Nova Scotia, as you know, and, uh, and was around very, I was in a small town with a large surrounding rural area. And I feel like moonshine was a little bit part of the culture. I, I don't know how many people actually drank it, but we talk about, talked about it a bit, and uh, which is sort of home alcohol distillate, uh, certainly highly illegal and highly dangerous. And one of the reasons is that there can be other alcohols produced in the distilling process mm -hmm. besides the desired ethanol. Uh, and the predominant one of those is methanol. And I don't want to speak for any other child in Nova Scotia, but I, I and most of the people I knew knew that you could go blind from drinking moonshine. And you're, you're going to talk a little bit about why that might be the case. So, yeah, that is indeed one of the effects that we can possibly see from methanol exposure. Uh, initially, when people present with methanol uh, toxicity, they, you know, present intoxicated as if they were, had consumed ethanol. In terms of then moving forward, you start to see over a course of hours and a day, start developing headaches, their level of consciousness continues to get impaired, and then they start developing those visual disturbances, and that's in the setting of predominant retinal toxicity, and they can develop optic edema and consequently the visual loss from that. Uh, and outside of that more systemically, a lot of nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, they'll become, you know, tachypnic, tachycardic, and just overall uh, not be doing well clinically. Just, um, just to comment on that, the clinical finding, right, is going to be with retinal toxicity uh, and optic disc edema and somebody who's intoxicated, you want to think about this. And that person is going to have decreased visual acuity. They may have some restriction in their visual fields. So something that you want to think about in somebody who appears to have a toxidrome with prominent visual loss or retinal dysfunction would be, would be methanol. And then rarely in the setting of acute methanol toxicity and exposure, you can actually develop similar edema and even hemorrhage in the bilateral putamen and can develop, you know, acute extrapyramidal movements. Uh, you can also see. Um, and generally speaking, when we think about the pathophysiology of methanol, we know we, we start with the methanol, it goes through alcohol dehydrogenase to formaldehyde, then that goes through another dehydrogenase, and you end up with formic acid, which is really the kind of end product that is doing a lot of the damage, if you will. Diagnostically, generally, if you're thinking about methanol toxicity, you're going to be sending off ethanol levels, methanol levels, ethylene glycol levels, so other, you know, um, high osmotic agents, uh, high osmotic um, ethanol, you know, alcohol levels in the blood just to get a general sense of what's going on because of just shared exposures um, and shared presentations. Um, you will, like I kind of alluding to, there is going to be um, uh, elevated osmogap 
in the setting of these toxicities. Um, and you can also, you know, calculate that based off of the plasma osmolality. And then generally speaking, like I said, if you're starting to see those extrapyramidal symptoms, extrapyramidal movements, that's when on an MRI, you may end up seeing some putaminal infarctions or even hemorrhage. Management for acute methanol toxicity, um, you know, colloquially in the past, it was actually going to be ethanol, um, which would essentially just be competitive across alcohol dehydrogenase to limit the formation of that toxic end goal, the formic acid. Um, but nowadays, there is technically an alcohol dehydrogenase inhibitor, um, and that's fomepazil that can, you know, additionally be used. In the setting of, you know, this buildup of formic acid, you also generally will need to start managing acidemia as well um, with, you know, treatment with bicarb supplementation moving forward. So to summarize, if you have a toxidrum, somebody who appears to be intoxicated can look a lot like ethanol intoxication, otherwise behaviorally, but with visual loss, often delayed with an anion gap, metabolic acidosis, with an osmolar molar gap as well, methanol is certainly something you want to be thinking about. Uh, and one with profound and potentially permanent visual and neurological complications. Then moving forward to the next one, uh, we'll talk about carbon monoxide. So generally exposure for carbon monoxide. And so it's essentially anytime we're going through combustion and you're not properly ventilating. So fires, defective like gas boilers, motor vehicle exhaust, all of these things will ultimately, you know, increase carbon monoxide levels that can be to the point of pathophysiologic relevance. In terms of what exactly happens, so with carbon monoxide, it has a higher binding efficiency to iron, so the iron ion in the actual heme itself. And once carbon monoxide binds, it actually shifts that wonderful oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve that was kind of drilled into everyone during preclinical years uh, to the left. And consequently, you're first off not going to have as much oxygen essentially bound to heme, and you consequently will have decreased oxygen release as well because of that leftward shift, all of which leading end goal to decreased oxygenation of you know, peripheral tissues and central tissues. Aaron, you've just transported me back about 25 years, uh, sitting in my room in the summer, reviewing a manual to study for the MCAT exam and having to look at this uh, oxy uh, oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve and the shifts and all this kind of stuff. So, so thanks, thanks for the memories. All of our listeners are probably sharing in their own moment of memories, but something that's incredibly cl clinically useful and, and has important implications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely brought me back to uh, a lot of time in libraries as well when I was thinking back on that. In terms of the toxicity, uh, we generally acutely will, with neuro neurologic symptoms, will experience maybe some headaches and dizziness, disorientation. Um, and similarly to the other toxins we've kind of alluded to, and it's notably severe, can progress all the way to coma and seizures. Um, and given the limitation in oxygenation, these patients acutely will also have, you know, cardiac symptoms, uh, be it angina, some can suffer from MIs and even develop towards arrhythmias. So this, these patients can be quite sick when they come in. Uh, chronically speaking, uh, generally what we will see afterwards will be all related to delayed post-anoxic injury. Um, and, you know, neurologically speaking, that can be 
a broad canvas of symptoms. You can see uh, essentially early onset dementias, ataxias, other extra pyramidal symptoms like tremor, chorea, dystonias, really bad rigidity. Um, and given the kind of diffuse injury centrally, these patients generally have some hyperreflexia and some will be complicated long-term by you know, post-anoxic seizures. Now, in terms of diagnostics, there is one you know, thing that I wanted to make sure that I mentioned, something I generally forget every, until every time I come back and read about carbon monoxide is on pulse ox oximetry, that will be normal when they come in. Um, because uh, generally speaking, the standard pulse ox that is used can't really differentiate carboxyhemoglobin from the normal oxyhemoglobin. Um, and then when you do ABG testing to kind of confirm a carboxyhemoglobin level, which is really what you need to do, um, that can vary, um, particularly based on smoking status. Uh, so for a non-smoker, generally, if it's, you know, greater than 3%, that'll be relatively concerning. But in a, you know, a chronic smoker, they're going to have elevated carboxyhemoglobin at baseline. Um, and that they can go up to like greater than 10 to 15% would be more abnormal in that specific population. And ultimately, the management for carbon monoxide is really just oxygen. It, it's what they need. Uh, and that can be, you know, variable based on the severity of exposure, um, anything from just high flow at 100% all the way to hyperbaric oxygen and intubation if, if they really are having evidence of end-organ ischemia. Terrific. So again, starts with the history, you know, an exposure, inadequate ventilation. You know, it's one of the clues always is if other people in the house have similar mm -hmm. symptoms, uh, you know, there's probably a ventilation issue, right? Um, and then uh, I always forget, but have to be reminded, our, our internal medicine colleagues probably know this off by heart, but the pulse, pulse oximetry is not going to pick it up. Uh, and that's because you, it will not distinguish carboxy from oxyhemoglobin. Uh, and so excellent, important point. And sometimes that sometimes comes up on exams. So Aaron, let's transition. We're going to do four syndromes of toxicity from agents we use a lot of, uh, and uh, those will be anticholinergics. Obviously, we use a ton of anticholinergic medications. Cholinergic toxicity, you know, usually with other exposures, but uh, sometimes we see with some of the agents that we give and very neurologically relevant. And then we'll, uh, we'll ride home on serotonin and neuroleptic malignant syndrome, very commonly tested and good things for all of us to understand. So, so why don't we start with anticholinergics? Very complicated Toxidrome, often very difficult to treat. There are lots of mnemonics that I can never remember, but, but uh, why, why don't we go through them? Sounds good. So for the anticholinergics, uh, when we think about exposure sources, so as we were saying, you know, these are going to be a lot of iatrogenic considerations. So when we think about medications with anticholinergic properties, we'll think about the antihistamines, which kind of do have a broad effect, like diphenhydramine. You'll think about some of the older um, tricyclic medications for depression, so the TCAs, um, then more classically atropine, scopalamine, certain anti-Parkinson's meds like benztropin, and then the first-generation antipsychotics, which do have that kind of broad coverage of receptors, can also hit on uh, the anticholinergic you know, receptors as well, and those would be flufenazine and chlorpromazine. And then there are some uh, plants and supplements uh, like jimson weed, can actually be associated with some anticholinergic properties. And then, you know, in terms of like poisoning, um, in terms of botanical stuff like nightshade uh, is classically associated with an anticholinergic toxicity. So, so Aaron, I'm showing you a picture of jimson weed. 
Uh, I don't know if you've seen this around. It's actually a pretty common plant. It's endemic to lots of areas. Um, and uh, it causes a focal toxicity uh, and can be a cause of a dilated pupil. Uh, this is sometimes called gardener's pupil. It, uh, the, uh, the name of this is datura. I guess that's the, the, uh, the genus of this type of plant. And we've definitely seen this gardener's pupil. I think every ophthalmologist has seen somebody with a lot of gardening who gets cholinergic toxicity on the pupil with jimson weed. So something to think about. Um, apparently this is just more for in listeners interest. I remember coming across this and I have no source for this at this moment. Sometimes teenagers would make a tea out of jimson weed and it would cause a little bit of a, an intoxication, uh, anticholinergic, possibly mildly sedative hallucinogenic, uh, effect. That sounds like the least fun anybody could ever have, but I guess people will experiment with just about anything. So that, that's the little side notes about jimson weed. Oh, thank you. That was fantastic. I didn't come across the gardener's pupil. So that is definitely an interesting fact. And in terms of generally speaking, what we think about with the presentation, uh, classically, I guess going through medical school, I kind of learned it with some, some small sayings, not a mnemonic by any means, but it was always descriptive as, you know, red as a beet, dry as a bone, hot as a hair, blind as a bat, full as a flask, and mad as a hatter. So, you know, going through each of them, red as a beet, it's all about the peripheral vasodilation um, because your body's essentially in an anticholinergic syndrome, you know, isn't going to be able to produce sweat as much. Uh, so this is a, a compensation with dilation at the end arterioles, and then you get, you know, very red. Uh, dry as a bone, like kind of going alongside that, anhydrosis. Uh, the hot as a hair, hyperthermia. Um, blind as a bat is coming through a non-reactive midriasis. And then full as a flask, all about urinary retention. And then mad as a hatter. So this comes more with the, like the neurologic syndrome with it. So agitation, anxiety, disorientation, some visual hallucinations, and psychosis. Um, and then similar to the other ones, if very high toxicity, coma, and seizures. Um, and diagnostically, there's really no specific test for this. It really is just clinically and history-based. Um, and then management uh, will come through ultimately trying to increase uh, central and peripheral effects of acetylcholine. Um, and you can do that through physostigmine, which essentially inhibits uh, acetylcholinesterase, which works to break down acetylcholine. So by inhibiting that, you get to increase that concentration and prolong its effect and hopefully relieve symptoms. You know, we've talked in other podcasts about idioms uh, and how they can be not very particularly culturally transferable. I've never heard anybody say hot as a hair, you know, for, for any reason, maybe, maybe that's an American thing. Uh, and full as a flask, I, I guess they're full until you drink out of them. All right. I'm out of control. Let's, let's uh, transition to cholinergic toxicity. So the opposite. So for cholinergic toxicity, we'll be thinking about exposures, classically what we think about and have been taught are organophosphates, like in pesticides. And then there are some nerve agents in terms of like, you know, chemical warfare, like tabin and sarin that have also been implicated in toxicities like this. And then, you know, more iatrogenically, we think about medications with particular cholinergic properties. Um, those would be medications that we use to reverse neuromuscular junction blockade. So like neostigmine, pyridostigmine, you know, the reversal agent uh, that we just talked about. Um, then there are some treatments for glaucoma, myasthenia, and Alzheimer's disease like donepazil. In terms of the clinical presentation, so all of the 
muscarinic receptor-based symptoms do have um, some mnemonics to go off of. The one that I, I learned was dumbbells. So you think about defecation, urination, meiosis, bronchorrhea, bronchospasm, bradycardia. So Bs are all kind of lumped together under the respiratory and cardiac symptoms. E for emesis, lacrimation, and salivation. In terms of nicotinic receptor-based symptoms, so not the muscarinic, you can think about you know, fasciculations, muscle weakness, and even paralysis if particularly uh, symptomatic. No specific tests clinically based, you know, based on the history, based on the actual appearance and uh, presentation of the patient. Um, and the management for reversal for this would be atropine, which is a competitive antagonist of acetylcholine at the muscarinic receptors themselves. So this would really work at treating the dumbbells portion of the syndrome. Um, in the case where there's a lot of uh, nicotinic receptor uh, involvement as well, then you also have to give pralidoxime which essentially reactivates uh, cholinesterase that had been inhibited. Um, and that would be in the setting of like the organic phosphates. Um, and that would ultimately work to treat those symptoms as well. I will say that not uncommonly, you'll come across a vignette like this with the excessive urination, meiosis, emesis, lacrimation, salivation, sialuria, things like that, sort of the opposite of anticholinergic. Uh, and they, the, Often the toxidrome that comes up is organophosphate uh, pesticide exposure, uh, pesti pesticide exposure. So this is one that comes up and whether you use dumbbells or not, uh, you want to stay strong uh, in, under in recognizing and understanding the organophosphates. And hitting it home today with the puns. This is wonderful. Okay. And then the last two that we'll cover are ones that I, I always have a hard time keeping straight in my head for some reason. I'm not 100% sure why but serotonin syndrome and neuroleptic malignant syndrome. For your serotonin syndrome, uh, this is obviously one that very iatrogenically based at times. So in serotonin syndrome, it's all about drugs that are increasing serotonin. So that can be through serotonin release, like amphetamines, ecstasy, cocaine, or serotonin reuptake, uh, be it SSRIs, SNRIs, uh, TCAs, or even tramadol. Uh, impaired serotonin metabolism, so like the MAOI inhibitors, uh, interestingly, linozolide can do that, phenylzine can do that, methylene blue can do that. Um, and then in terms of serotonin receptor agonists, you can think about buspirone, the triptans, fentanyl, um, and LSD. Clinically, what we'll see, uh, there will be mental status changes, neurologically speaking. Uh, usually it's more anxiety, restlessness, or an, an agitated delirium, so more activating. Um, neuromuscular, you'll see hyperactivity tremor, myoclonus, the reflexes, particularly hyperreflexia, uh, clonus, and rigidity. And, you know, as other toxins we've talked about, when very severe can precipitate seizures. Uh, additionally, these patients will kind of be activated, like I was getting at. They'll be diaphoretic, tachycardic, hyperthermic, um, and hypertensive. Um, similarly to the other ones that we've been talking about recently, you know, not really any specific tests that you can do for these syndromes, completely clinically based and history based. There are some diagnostic criteria. There's uh, the Hunter toxicity criteria, and these are kind of, you know, some decision rules that you can go through to help kind of gauge your clinical suspicion on the syndrome. In terms of management, first and foremost, stopping serotoninergic agents. Um, a lot of supportive care. Sometimes there's, uh, you're able to treat a little of the agitation with benzos just as a sedative. 
Um, and there is technically an antidote, uh, and that would be ciproheptidine. This works as a histamine one receptor antagonist, that it has these nonspecific antagonistic properties across two serotonergic receptors, 5-HT1A and HT2A, which is kind of how it's, you know, functions as a serotonergic antagonist and reversal. Yeah, we, you know, we've seen serotonin syndrome. I think it's always hard to distinguish. I think the huge take-homes, right, if you're worried about this and differentiating the hyperreflexia uh, and often prominent clonus. And, you know, I think people forget, people remember about SSRIs, SNRIs, things like that, TCAs. We see a lot of tramadol being prescribed and that definitely in combination with the SSRIs, SNRIs is a time when I've seen serotonin syndrome. And then as you say, you know, certain types of serotonin receptor agonists, including fentanyl. So just to broaden your search for serotonergic agents besides the typical antidepressants, and especially including tramadol, I've definitely seen serotonin syndrome in somebody who's on an SSRI and is either using or, or misusing tramadol in, in addition. Uh, tramadol is a medication that comes up a lot in neurology because it can also lower seizure threshold. But uh, those takeaway points, good medication reconciliation, and the hyperreflexia and clonus. Those are going to be key takeaways. And then comparing and contrasting moving forward, we'll talk about the neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Um, so exposure sources here, uh, generally thought secondary to dopamine receptor blockade. So that's kind of the key here, blockade of the dopamine receptors. So medications, antipsychotics classically, uh, the first generation, so haloperidol, flufenazine, and they kind of predominate over for this, the second generations like risperidone or olanzapine. Uh, you can also think about like antiemetics. Uh, we have a lot of metoclopramide, promethazine. You know, there are similar symptoms as seen in acute withdrawal of patients with Parkinson's disease. If they have acute withdrawal of their dopaminergic meds can kind of present in a similar way. In terms of the presentation, uh, you know, mental status, it'll mostly be delirium, confusion that can progress to a coma if severe. Uh, neuromuscular symptoms, it's going to be rigidity, you know, generalized, symmetric. They'll have some eye movement abnormalities with some nystagmus and occasionally some dysphagia and dysarthria has been, you know, at least noted. Additionally, more broadly speaking, they'll be hyperthermic and have predominant dysautonomia. The key difference from serotonin syndrome, the onset will be slower, generally speaking, days to weeks. And they, will, they won't have that characteristic hyperreflexia. So although the syndromes may look somewhat similar at times, it'll really be the reflexes that can guide the difference here. And obviously the medication reconciliation. Diagnostically speaking, and this, the only thing that you can see at times, you know, there could be a very elevated CK in the setting of uh, very severe rigidity, but that's not, you know, not necessarily going to be seen with everyone by any means. In terms of the management, it's going to be removal of causative agents, supportive care, and in terms of specific agents that can be used. So coming back to, you know, this being a problem of dopamine receptor blockade, you can give bromocryptine, which is a dopamine agonist. You can also give dantrolene, which will more directly act to address the rigidity and directly relax the skeletal muscle. Yeah, I think that's great. Again, serotonin versus neuromoleptic malignant, the medication reconciliation is going to help. Sometimes you don't know. And this difference between hyperreflexia or decreased reflexes can be very helpful. Hyperreflexia with serotonin syndrome, decreased 
reflexes or rigidity with neuroleptic malignant syndrome. And as you said, the onset typically being much more acute with serotonin syndrome. In both cases, the vast majority of the care is supportive and these other agents really help to take the edge off, but, but it's, it's typically early recognition, removal of the offending agents and supportive care. Well, what a great summary, Aaron. I, I think this will be incredibly useful to our listeners. The puns will be less useful and possibly confounding, but hopefully our listeners are wise enough to wade through that silliness. And thanks so much for putting this together. I think this was just wonderful and I learned a lot. Well, thank you. It was definitely a good one to go through and review because I definitely feel like this is, you know, something we see clinically and also something that we get tested on quite frequently. So it was was a good review on my part as well. And thank you again for all of your help. All right. Have a wonderful afternoon.